Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. After the stock market crashed in 1929, there weren't a lot of people with huge amounts of money. But there were some. The Bamberger family had just sold their huge department store to Macy's a few weeks before the market tanked, and they had a ton of cash in a country that was now racing towards the Great Depression. The Bambergers wanted to do something good with their money, so they consulted a scholar named Abraham Flexner, and they asked him, should they open a medical school, maybe one that did not discriminate by race or by religion? But Flexner had something else in mind, an institute that would be devoted to smart people thinking big and maybe even seemingly useless thoughts. Flexner knew that things that might seem to have little use initially, whether it's electricity or computers or quantum mechanics, those things often turn out to be more practical than people expect. So the Bambergers took their department store money and they helped Flexner build the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And Flexner brought to the Institute some of the great minds that would have been in serious danger in Europe during the 1930s and 40s, like Albert Einstein. Robert Dykgraf is the current director of the Institute for Advanced Study and a professor of physics. He worries that the idea of bringing together great minds and just letting them play, that's no longer something we want to fund as a country. And that could mean that innovation will take a huge hit. Dykgraf has written a new companion essay to Abraham Flexner's book, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. Robert, welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. So why do you think um, Abraham Flexner valued so highly, uh, quote unquote, useless knowledge? Well, I think he really was a visionary. He was an exceptional man that truly believed uh, that looking back in history, that the great transformations that he lived through himself, think mm-hmm. about the advent of electricity, mm-hmm. that they uh, all found their origin in passionate inquiry in the world, uh, not driven by any applications. Mm-hmm. And uh, to his own surprise, uh, I think this uh, this institute that he created, that he felt you know, it would take many, many decades to find anything useful, uh, right. was, I think, you know, in retrospect, the perfect case to, uh, that illustrates this thought. So let, let me just go back to that point of electricity for a minute, which seems so useful to us now. Are you saying that when electricity was first sort of understood, people didn't know what they were going to do with it? No, it was some crazy phenomena. You know, people went <laughs> and look at, you know, your hair would rise, uh, you would have sparks. Right, right. There's a famous uh, uh, quote of uh, Faraday, Michael Faraday, who in the 1830s was experimenting in Britain with electricity, that actually uh, William Gladstone, uh, who was then the... Uh, the uh, the exchequer, so the minister of finance, mm-hmm. came and asked, you know, what's this good for? And Faraday answered, I've no idea, but one day you might tax it. <laughs> and of course, we yep. all pay taxes on, right. our, on our energy bills. And it's remarkable that even in 1900, you know, electricity was a bizarre phenomena. And mm-hmm. I think now every element of our life is electrified. There's nothing that you know, if, the, if, if we don't have any electricity, life stops. Can you talk about maybe a couple of other innovations where when people initially thought of them, they're like, well, this is interesting, but what the heck would you do with it? And it wasn't until, you know, some years or some decades online that people figured out, oh, this is what you could do with it. 
What are two famous examples that happened actually under Flexner's nose, so to say, in the 1930s? The first is the uh, the advent of quantum mechanics, you know, studying uh, atoms and the electrons. And it was really some esoteric field where a few young physicists were working in. And actually, right this moment, it's estimated that uh, 30% of our economy is based on quantum mechanics. Wow. Um, in fact, with the advent of quantum computers, which is you know, about to happen, that might be even more, we really are using these kind of counterintuitive properties of quantum mechanics that you know, particle can be at two places to, uh, for secure coding of messages. Mm-hmm. We, we use it for, uh, as for all the nanomaterials that are mm. around us. So that's one example. Another example is actually the computer. Remarkably, the Institute for Advanced Study was a kind of the birthplace of the modern architecture computer. Von Neumann, one of these other great giants, uh, perhaps the smartest mm-hmm. person to live in the 20th century, also came in the 1930s, fled Europe. And he was interesting, interested in mathematical logic. Uh, and there were ideas of Turing and Gödel about constructing an abstract machine. And then he turned it into a real machine. Well, and of course, our, our lives have been completely changed by the digital revolution too. So these are just two examples that you know Flexner himself was surprised to see kind of happening. Hmm. Um, and I think perhaps the most stunning example is Einstein, who mm-hmm. uh, you know more than a century ago thought of a theory of relativity. And when he passed away in the 1950s, his theory was praised as a work of art. You know, it had no applications, totally useless. It's an interesting philosophical perspective. And now we actually use it in our GPS every day. Uh, oh, now yeah. I couldn't find yeah, 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 uh, yeah. the studio without Einstein. <laughs> you talk about this uh, small project that I didn't know about, um, supported by the Digital Libraries Initiative, the National Science Foundation, which seems like the most obscure thing you've ever heard of, except that the two of the people who got were on this project were the two founders of Google. And you say it is possibly the government grant with the highest payoff ever. I think those kinds of backstories are not told that often. No, it was a grant, I think it was like three and a half million dollars. And I'm not sure what Google or Alphabet now is worth. It must More. be uh, <laughs> 600 billion or something. Right, right, right. So it means that there, uh, it's a, a multiplier of 100,000 or more. Hmm. And so from the point of view of the government, if you have one of these investments, 99,999 could have failed, right. and you would still come out money. ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Dykgraf, a mathematical physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's the author of a new companion essay to Abraham Flexner's The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. You talk about uh, the launch of Sputnik by the Russians in 1957, a huge reminder to the American government, we should probably spend some more money on research. Um Talk about what happened after that to, you know, research budgets. Well, it was a, it was a crucial period. I, I must say, I, uh, recently I talked to somebody who was working in particle physics uh, in 1959, and they were actually listening to Sputnik uh, flying over, and they jumped out of the offices and start cheering, saying, research money will come, because <laughs> this was the wake-up call <laughs> that America needed. And at that point, there was a, uh, and already, of course, at that point, there was a buildup of uh, what we now think of the modern research infrastructure, things like the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the Department of Energy, large government funding scheme. 
But then I, th I think at that point, the United States decided to invest massively in basic research, so research that doesn't have an immediate application into mind, and also really transform education. And anybody who looks at, say, magazines of that period, you will see many, many advertisements that are um, highlighting the role of science mm. and the promise of innovation. I think there was, in some sense, a, it was a wake-up call, but it was also a very optimistic period in life where people mm -hmm. were firmly believing that these massive investments in research would not only make this country safer and secure, but also uh, would increase the uh, well-being of people. You know, you talked about um, people looking at magazines in the 60s and they sort of highlighted scientists and science is amazing and that kind of thing. Do you think we've lost the optimism that existed then? I think we did. And um, one thing I find kind of amazing is that on the one hand, we have this incredible progress in science and technology and we are much more kind of governed by it or, or, or controlled by it. Our lives is facilitated by all this science and technology, but it looks like we are less aware of it. Uh, there's a certain risk that science will, on the one hand, be all pervasive. It will control our lives. It will be literally in our bloodstream, in our pockets, in our brains, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And the other hand, we are completely oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. And it's like invisible. Mm -hmm. So it's it's. I find it kind of uh, remarkable that uh, society is so short-term minded. Mm -hmm. uh, we are we sometimes journalists uh, joke that they long back to the times when the news cycle was 24 hours. These days, it's like it's minutes. Uh, so science itself, which by definition is about long-term thinking, it's about uh, being very careful. It's about it's a very subtle art. It seems to fit not well in the present-day society. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, its speed is breathtaking. Right. It's changing our world. And right. so this kind of paradox right. of this great force that controls our lives but is kind of invisible mm -hmm. in the public perception, mm -hmm. I think that's a very dangerous situation. If you are running a government or even just electing people to government and you see, okay, there's all these pressing needs. We've got to fund education, healthcare costs are rising. You know, th these things need to be done like right this second. How do you make the case to people, well, let's invest in some stuff that we don't really know where it's going to go and maybe it'll go nowhere, but, but we should invest in some basic science, let's say. Well, my argument would be by investing in basic science, we are addressing all the other issues. So think about the money we spend in defense or the money we have to spend in healthcare or in education. You want to do it in a smart way. For instance, these days we are able to uh, deal with diseases at the molecular level, mm. which is only possible because 50 years ago we allowed scientists to ask basic questions about the basis of life. So it's not a cost. It's an investment that in the end will allow us to be much more cost-effective in all the other different subjects. Now, it's not that, of course, I'm arguing that you should spend all your money on basic research. You need a certain fraction. And I think this is the thing that we should debate. You know, you say, how much money should you put aside for deep, long-term investments that will dramatically change your outlook and your ability to solve the societal issues which we all are dealing with. 
Do you, and do you see any roads to sort of political feasibility uh, for the actual increasing of our research budget? Well, the good thing is if you look back in history that uh, basic research and science and technology in some sense never was a partisan issue. No, it's, uh, so to say, it's uh, equally attractive from the left and the right. Uh, it, it, it boosts the economy, it boosts our defense, and on the other hand, it's the great equalizer. I think, you know, uh, scientific talent is across all social strata, and it has been a great uh, mechanism to uplift large parts of society that do not have any chances. So it, it's equally beautiful from the left and the right. And I think do therefore... You worry, it, do you worry, though, that it has in some ways become more of a partisan issue than at least you're saying it should be? I think it. I do worry about this. And I think you almost now feel uh, that there is something of an anti-intellectual climate there. I think this should not be. I think this is something, you know, uh, it's about understanding reality. <laughs> and reality, you know, uh, in the end has the, has the last word. Um, you know, all, all our lives are based on just, you know, the way reality works and we, we, we want and we are in a position to control it in terms of matter and life and information. So I do worry that it has become much more a politically charged subject. I think science and technology should be one of the few causes that you know is seen as a benefit to all aspects of society. It's mm-hmm. something where, for instance, business interest and personal interest, people who are passionate about education or you know, passionate about national defense. They can all come together mm-hmm. because it's, in the end, looking back in history, all of these different sectors in society benefited and benefited tremendously. Mm-hmm. I think if we would have, uh, literally, if I would snap my fingers now and all technology developed in the last hundred years would disappear, you know, our life would stop immediately. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's life would stop. Right. All parts of society, all parts of business would stop. So it's really something that should bring us together. Mm-hmm. Robert Dijkgraaf is the director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's a professor of physics, and he's written a new companion essay to Abraham Flexner's book, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. Robert, this was great. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much. One last thing from Dyke Graf. After he got his master's degree in physics, he actually left the science world to study painting for a couple of years. In art school, I actually learned about the research process, which is not about studying for a test, but it's feeling free to explore. And when he later went to get his PhD in physics, he approached his work like he approached a canvas with paint. I said, I want to capture that attitude. That is to say, I want to make sketches. It's not about whether it's good or bad. It's about, did I explore? We'll have a link to more of Dijkgraaf's ideas about the power of scientific exploration at our website, innovationhub.org. 